Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Welcome to the first episode of Generally Speaking. In this podcast, we're going to examine specific types of crimes through the lens of our special prosecution units. But before we dive into specifics, I'd like to spend just a little bit of time telling our listeners exactly what a prosecutor is and what a prosecutor does. In Tennessee, we have 95 counties. Those 95 counties are divided into 31 judicial districts. Each of those judicial districts has one elected district attorney general. I am the elected district attorney general for the 6th judicial district. Here, the 6th judicial district happens to encompass geographically just Knox County. In my office, I have over 40 assistant district attorneys, also known as prosecutors. These prosecutors basically seek justice for the state of Tennessee each and every day. They seek this justice in many different ways. They help law enforcement investigate crimes on the front end. After helping law enforcement investigate crimes, they represent the state in many different courts. Here in Knox County, they represent the state of Tennessee in five sessions courts, three criminal courts, one juvenile court, and many specialty courts. Some of those specialty courts you'll hear about as this podcast continues. In order to best equip these prosecutors to serve our community and our victims, I have divided the prosecutors in my office into special prosecution units. Each of these units is made up of a group of prosecutors, victim witness coordinators, and support staff members. What each unit or group does is basically specialize in a particular type of crime. The thinking is, If we specialize small groups of prosecutors and support staff to deal with particular types of crime, they will better serve victims by becoming specialized in that area. For instance, we have a child abuse unit where all the prosecutors receive special training only on prosecution of child abuse cases. Training that would deal with how to talk to and interview young victims. We train those particular prosecutors on trauma, the reaction of children in traumatic situations, and we don't train anyone else in the office on that. So our child abuse prosecutors are specially trained in that area. We have other specialized prosecution units that you will hear from throughout this podcast. The first specialized prosecution unit that we're going to hear from today is our major crimes unit. Our major crimes unit is the unit where our most egregious cases are handled. These prosecutors handle my most serious crimes. They deal with our violent Class A and Class B felonies. Now, what that means is they deal with cases like homicide, rape, aggravated robbery, aggravated arson. The people, the victims impacted by these crimes are our most severely 
impacted victims. And the members of this unit that you're going to meet today walk with those victims, shepherd those victims through the entire criminal justice process. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to focus mainly on the homicide cases that they deal with. And in order for you to better understand what homicides look like in Knox County at the time of this podcast, I want to start by giving our listeners some statistical data. Last year in 2020, we saw the highest number of homicides in Knox County that we have had in our recent history with 45. Unfortunately, as we've started this year, 2021, we have an even higher rate of homicides than we saw at the same time last year. Most of our homicides are committed inside the city limits, and the vast majority of our homicides are committed with firearms. With us today are two assistant district attorneys from our major crimes unit. We have ADA Kevin Allen, who joined the office in 1995 and has been the lead prosecutor on a wide range of violent crimes as well as numerous prosecutions of homicides throughout his career. He successfully prosecuted our district's first cold case CODIS DNA match on a serial rapist. Thanks for joining us, General Allen. Thanks for having me. We also have ADA Hector Sanchez, who joined the office in 2010. Before joining the Major Crimes Unit, he served in our Felony Drug Unit. General Sanchez also carries the title of Sergeant Sanchez in the United States Marine Corps. Before receiving an honorable discharge in 2009, he distinguished himself in our armed services by serving in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom. Thank you for your service, and thank you for joining us, General Sanchez. Thank you, General. All right, let's begin our direct examination. Well, we chose your unit to start this podcast because such a high percentage of your crimes travel all the way through the system, ending up in a jury trial. So we wanted to use you to walk us through that process while at the same time highlighting homicide cases and how a prosecutor deals with homicide cases. So let's start by asking what point do you as a prosecutor get involved in a homicide case? We're really fortunate in our jurisdiction to have uh, two things going for us. The first is that we have a really good relationship, working relationship with our local law enforcement agencies. Both the Knoxville Police Department and the Sheriff's Department have experienced units. They've assembled, I think we have about 20 full-time investigators between the two agencies who we deal with on a regular basis, nine with the Sheriff's Department, 11 with the City Police Department. And they focus, or rather they stack the deck, so to speak, with uh, the experienced investigators. The people that are assigned to those units are, in fact, the probably the most experienced folks. As far as on the front end, uh, we have communication with them through our office, through an on-call system. There's four full-time prosecutors in our unit, two victim witness coordinators, and our executive secretary in our unit. And we rotate the crimes as they come out, and we have... Uh, instant communication, as I mentioned, on-call communications where we answer questions in the field when a homicide occurs. So the investigators will call us, but as I mentioned before, they're extremely experienced and they'll need information from us with regard to everything from executing search warrants to charging decisions and those types of things. So when we get involved is essentially right on the front end. We'll get calls when they're at, out at the scene and try to do our part in assisting and guiding that investigation. 
Well, particularly in these homicide cases, one of the most common questions that we receive from the community and often from victims' families is, what is taking so long? Why is my case taking forever to go through the system? So if you as prosecutors get involved from the very beginning with these investigators when the crime occurs, explain to our listeners why the pre-charge phase may take such a long time for a prosecutor. Well, General Allen, these cases, homicides uh, in themselves, are very complex. They're unique in several ways. Foremost, there's not a victim. We are advancing on a case uh, without somebody to testify as to what occurred, uh, what happened to them. We're relying upon proof and and witnesses uh, in these types of cases. Another consideration why these cases are unique is that the the consequences are very severe. If convicted in the state of Tennessee of a first-degree murder, the defendant will receive an automatic life sentence. Another consideration to take into account of why these cases are taking a long time to make a charging decision and then perhaps to uh, advance to a jury trial uh, is the collection of relevant records that pertain to the case. Some of these include the final medical examiner's report, and in that report that will catalog uh, various injuries and the cause and manner of death. And as you said earlier, a typical manner, the most often case we have is gunshot wounds here in Knox County. Furthermore, forensic documentation, we conduct or ask for firearms analysis to be conducted, tool mark analysis in firearms, shell casing comparison, fingerprint analysis. And these are things that are complex um, in themselves. They require sending certain pieces of evidence off to a state uh, lab to be tested. Um, This is not something that can be done overnight. This is a a turnaround of roughly eight months at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, With regard to scientific testing, that's another consideration as to why uh, this case may be taking a while to, uh, one, make a charging decision, or two, advance to trial. DNA, waiting on DNA to be able to link a perpetrator to a crime scene. Uh, Sometimes gunshot residue tests are taken to determine whether or not the suspect we believe is responsible for a homicide uh, has gunshot residue on their extremities, particularly their hands. So typically, this is not what you see on TV. It's, it's very complex. Uh, there's a lot of consideration that goes into a charging decision, and there's even more follow-up investigation that occurs uh, before a jury trial. So that's part of the reason that we most often have to explain to grieving families uh, why sometimes several months will elapse before someone is charged, and then you know one or two years will elapse before we can eventually proceed to trial. Speaking of that one to two years before the case goes to trial, Can you explain to our listeners what happens to a homicide case after a charging decision is made? Well, all of those things that Hector's referring to, you know, the things that we do uh, before a decision's made, uh, all of those things come together for us to form a decision on how we're going to proceed. There's one of two ways we can proceed in Tennessee once the decision has been made to charge. The first is through a general sessions warrant where a officer appears before a magistrate and swears out allegations inside of a warrant alleging the, the uh, elements of the offense in our case a first-degree murder, and uh, that person is then brought before the magistrate, gone out and actually arrested and brought before the magistrate. The other way that we can initiate a process uh, once a charging decision has been made is through indictment by the grand jury, and that's a process where we go directly to the grand jury and appear in front of them with a charging document, and we make the allegations of homicide in the charging document, and the grand jury reviews that to determine whether or not there's probable cause for that that offense has been committed. And once they do that, then they issue an arrest warrant for the defendant after that. So both of those ways, uh, once we make the decision to charge, are ways that we can uh, get a person into custody and initiate the criminal process. 
During this process, what should a victim's family expect from our office? Well, General, I think first and foremost, a victim's family should expect a continuous line of communication with our office. We are fortunate to have victim witness coordinators assigned to each and every case. We are also fortunate in the Major Crimes Unit to be a vertical unit. And when I say vertical unit, what I'm referring to is that that case is assigned to a particular prosecutor in our unit and a particular victim witness coordinator. And they are with that family throughout the duration, um, the case's inception, if you will. So from the charging decision all the way through a jury trial and sometimes after for a post-conviction relief that uh, Kevin will talk about later. But communication uh, is key, and obviously a family uh, should expect to uh, be communicated with with every step of the criminal justice process that they venture through. They should also expect to receive certain resources. Uh, the Victims' Compensation Act permits burial expenses to be covered in certain scenarios, particularly with homicide cases. So they are made available uh, resources to them to deal with such instances as burial expenses. They should also expect to have a voice in the disposition of the case. They should expect to be consulted with regarding any potential offers that are going to be made uh, if the case warrants an offer to be made, such as uh, an issue with proof or sometimes that that happens, although in our cases we tend to go to trial more than anything else. But uh, they certainly, while, while they are not controlling uh, the Victims' Rights Act, certainly mandates that we communicate with these victims' families and keep them apprised of what's going on. They should also expect to be notified if the defendant is released um, and the victim witness coordinator is able to coordinate that uh, internally and sign them up with a website called VineLink where they will be notified of the defendant's status, whether or not they've made bond, uh, and whether uh, what type of community supervision uh, has been placed on them, such as a GPS monitoring device. So there's a lot going on during this time period, and it sounds like the victim witness coordinators do a lot of reaching out to these families throughout this process to keep them apprised of what's going on. During this time of preparing for trial and getting from that arraignment phase, if you will, through the actual trial of a case where we actually go in front of a jury, how long does that typically take? How long um, is this family communicating with our office throughout that process? Well, I think that's a good question, and that is a common question that we get at our initial appearances and our initial meetings with victims' families is how long between now and trial. And uh, typically what we'll tell them and explain to them is uh, the processes that are going to happen between the, the defendant's arrest and the actual jury trial are, are pretty significant. We go through processes of pretrial litigation with discovery, meaning we provide the defendant and the defense team uh, with all the documents and tangible objects and those types of things that we intend to introduce against that person. Once that's done, then there are other issues that have to be vetted out, like possibly mental health examinations. Uh, we have potential experts that are going to testify for the defense. And then if the defense notices on a particular expert, we may want to get our own expert. Uh, and those things develop and take time. So the answers usually that I give to a victim's family is that Typically, between the time of the incident from the date of offense through the jury trial, somewhere on the order of two years before we get to trial. There are some cases that we've gotten to trial in a year, but those are few and far between. The recent pandemic didn't help our backlog of cases, so I don't know what I'm estimating right now. We uh, hopefully will be able to overcome the, the backlog that we've had and, and for a victim's family to keep it to a minimum. But the other th item that 
that the victims don't know uh, to talk about is that there's a significant amount of time on the back end as well after trial There's uh, that the victim's family may be dealing with the case, especially in a homicide, because... Uh, after the trial, we have multiple phases of appeals, and we have what's called a post-conviction relief act where uh, the defendant then, once all their appeals are exhausted, they can then come back and allege constitutional errors like ineffective assistance of counsel and those types of things. And and that phase can take significantly longer than it takes to even get to trial. We prepare the victims on the front end for this is going to be a really long time. And unfortunately, uh, that's the system that we have. But if we prepare them on the front end and they know we're going to bat for them and they know we're going to be here for them and we're going to answer all their questions, I think that that helps alleviate a lot of their concerns on the front end. I have seen that uh, in the past many times. Victims' families get frustrated because it takes so long to get the case to trial. And so sometimes I think they're dealing with emotions and anger. And at some points they kind of take that out on us because it's taking so long. And so they start to question, are you really on my side? And then I have watched prosecutors go into the courtroom and fight tooth and nail for every single victim that has been the victim of a homicide. And I've watched those families come out of the courtroom saying, wow, I really get it now. And now that I see these prosecutors in the courtroom really leaving nothing on the table, fighting for uh, their loved one, then the families always come around and say, you know, I see that it really wasn't you that caused this to take so long. It's really the way the system is just stacked. And so um, I think that once you're right, once those victims see you actually perform in a courtroom to where uh, you really are giving it your all, those victims' families are always so appreciative. Something else you touched on just briefly is the COVID influence on the length of time it takes to get a case to trial. Just so our listeners will know, pre-pandemic, we were averaging about 80 trials a year in our office. Last year, during the pandemic, we were able to try 16. So that has caused a significant backlog in just being able to get cases through. So from here forward, not only will our homicide cases be affected, but I think all of our trials are going to take significantly longer, unfortunately. So these victims' families are um, unfortunately going to have to deal with the system for a much longer time, I'm afraid. Another thing that we could talk about is Uh, The effect that television has on your homicide cases, shows like Law & Order, CSI, just the emergence of all these true crime shows. How have those shows, specifically in homicide cases, affected juries? Well, General, I think they have certainly affected juries. Um, There's something that's referred to as a CSI effect. And if you think of CSI, Horatio Cain, he's able to pull up a DNA standard on a touchscreen within minutes after a homicide is committed. He's always able to capture video of the crime taking place, uh, the identity of the perpetrator, the immediacy of the turnaround of physical evidence. Uh, satellite imaging, things that are just, um, while we are have access to certain of these technological advances, they, are, they take time. Um, so one of the important things about the CSI effect is we have jury selection, of course, or voir dire, and that uh, occurs before a jury trial uh, happens, and that enables us to 
handpick 12 people that we believe would be best suited for a particular case, given the facts and circumstances. Uh, within that process, it's, a, it's very important that we uh, make sure that the prospective jurors understand that they're not going to attach burdens to us that we don't possess, that they're going to understand that not every case has DNA associated with it. Uh, not every case is captured on video. There's not immediate turnaround forensic testing. Uh, there's not immediate turnaround biological testing. These things take times. Such things as vehicle trackers, for example. Uh, one of the things that's used in a lot of these true crime shows that are fictitious in nature are automatically put on a vehicle or fixed to it when the reality is there's a, a, some litigation on the front end that has to occur uh, for that to, to take place. So I do believe that the CSI effect is real. However, I think uh, jury selection enables us to kind of vet out folks and explain to them why things may take longer, why we may not have access to all the proof that they uh, want to see. So it's certainly a challenge, but it's not something that I feel can't be overcome. Let's talk about another part of the trial process. Kevin, can you describe for our listeners the actual burden of proof for a trial? Sure. As I, as I mentioned before, in a criminal case, uh, the remedy that we're seeking is to take someone's liberty. When you think about the gravity of that, that we're actually going to confine somebody as a result of their conduct, you would expect that we would have the most stringent of uh, reviews in terms of the burden of proof uh, for trial. And in a criminal case, the burden of proof is that the, the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty of the offense. Because we have the burden of proof, that just means that we have to put the witnesses on who will satisfy the elements of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And the way I explain that to a jury, and when Hector was talking about Vordire, is we talk about burdens of proof in Vordire. And you will doubt what's happened in this case. As a human being, one of the human conditions that we have is that we doubt things that we haven't seen. And even the, sometimes we doubt things we have seen. I, I use an anecdotal story in Vordire about uh, one day I came home and, and uh, I had been doing some remodeling and I'd placed an old toilet out on the carport of my house and I saw out of the corner of my eye, I believed that it was my son using the toilet on the carport. And I was disheveled and, and, and shocked by it. And I lost uh, control of my, my uh, uh, pack and books. And I, as I bent over and picked things up, I looked back over and it, he was gone. He wasn't there. And so I doubted myself, uh, having even witnessed this crime in, in, in my uh, at carport, and I tell juries of that, that I then went over and I inspected the evidence and lifted the toilet seat, and sure enough, uh, there was some fresh evidence. I was pretty convinced then when I found my son that he had committed this offense. But I say that in jest to juries to say that we doubt ourselves because it's common that you're going to have doubt when you hear evidence you weren't there, you won't, can't be absolutely certain. And even if you did see it, uh, sometimes you're not certain of the things that you see and perceive. The instruction that the jury gets is that if they have a doubt, that that doubt has to be reasonable, that they have to, with, to a degree of moral certainty, uh, believe the defendant committed the offense. And that's the the standard of proof that, it, that we're held up to, and, and we face that at the jury trial head on. We tell the jury, you hold us to that. And for that reason, we have the burden of proof. In uh, courtrooms all over this country, you'll see that the state is uh, seated closest to the jury. That's because we have the burden of proof. Uh, we get to go first and we get to go last in our arguments uh, because we have the burden of proof. And I think it's a fair one. And I think that holding us to that uh, burden of proof is, is uh, given the the possibility that we're going to deprive somebody of their liberty is is justified. 
Especially in a homicide case. Can either one of you tell our listeners what the potential range of punishments for homicides and the disparity here in Tennessee? Yes, General. So there are five uh, forms of homicide in the state of Tennessee, uh, the, the least severe being criminally negligent homicide, which as a range one offender carries a punishment of one to two years. The second would be a reckless homicide. That's a class D felony that carries between two to four years as a range one offender. Uh, third being a voluntary manslaughter, that being a class C felony uh, that uh, carries a punishment of three to six years as a range one offender. Fourth, least severe, uh, second most severe, second degree murder. And there's quite a, a jump here, disparity with regard to sentencing. A range one offender, if convicted of second degree murder in the state of Tennessee, faces a mandatory sentence of 15 to 25 years to be served at a 100% service rate. That means, obviously, is that they're not eligible for parole. There is, in fact, a condition within the TCA that, uh, or a statute within the Tennessee Code that enables offenders to receive 15% off that sentence if they behave while they're confined. Uh, and last, there's first degree murder. Um, which in the state of Tennessee carries an automatic life sentence. So 60 years uh, minus 15%, uh, which comes out to 51 calendar years. And, and there's also a potential, obviously, with the first-degree murder, if certain enhancement factors are met, that uh, we could also seek life without the possibility of parole and the death penalty in, in the state of Tennessee. So those are the other alternatives for first-degree murder. I think that's always surprising for uh, people to hear that when you have committed a murder where there's a homicide, that there's actually something called criminally negligent homicide that you could actually serve as little as one year on probation for all the way up to, um, as you've discussed, the death penalty. But there's just such a wide range of punishments for homicide. Yes, and we have in Tennessee, we even have a process called judicial diversion where people are eligible to get their records expunged if they complete their probationary sentences. And the people eligible for judicial diversion are Class C felonies and below. So three of our five homicides in Tennessee are actual offenses for which you can be eligible to have it expunged from your record once you completed your probation. And to touch on that just a little bit more, the, the first three types of offenses, the most uh, three least severe, as Kevin was talking about, uh, they are presumed probatable. So if uh, this is a first-time offender, uh, we are going to face a serious uphill battle if we're asking that this defendant, after he's found guilty or, or pleads guilty to the offense, serve a sentence in the penitentiary. Uh, we have quite a battle ahead of us to achieve that. And it's always so hard for victims' families when they first hear that. You know, I've lost my loved one for eternity. We'll never see them again. And there's a potential that the person that could even be convicted of taking my loved one's life uh, could have their record expunged, could actually receive probation. I have always found that that's quite shocking often to victims' families. So I wanted to touch on that. Let's talk about curveballs. What's the biggest curveball you've been thrown during a jury trial? Well, General, I think the biggest curveball, um, for me at least, and I think Kevin would agree, is that that we're not entitled to, to know what the defense is. Um, and just on a fundamental level, that seems unfair as we go through the discovery process and we essentially show our hand of cards, if you will. Uh, we show all the proof against the defendant, and then we are sitting left to speculate as to what defense they're going to go after in their case in chief uh, if they intend to do so. So that's always a curveball for me. There's never one trial that uh, I've gone through that hasn't had a curveball, in fact. Another one that I've experienced on two occasions is during the case in chief, um, the defendant approaching the state or through his attorney and asking to resolve the case and plead guilty to a, a pretty lengthy prison term 
in exchange for stopping the trial, maybe things are not looking good for them. And that's obviously a risk as well, because you run the chance of, if we don't accept this, um, perhaps a jury will con- not convict them even of what he's offered. Um, typically, our position, I believe, in the office is if we're going to, if we've made it to trial, we're going to see it through. So that's a curveball, but we have remedies in place to avoid that. Another curveball that I've experienced is witnesses backing up, uh, whether that's out of fear uh, of people who are physically present in the courtroom. It's not unusual for someone who's charged with homicide to have a lot of spectators in support of them. Uh, A lot of those individuals are tied to some pretty serious uh, street gangs at times or just dangerous inherently, uh, have criminal records. Witnesses inability to identify a defendant in trial, whether or not that's genuine or uh, the result of some sort of coercion that's occurring. So coercion is definitely a curveball. Coercion happens. Um, One of the biggest curveballs that I recall in a trial was uh, using a confidential informant who was confined in jail against a heroin dealer. And after he had testified and while he was being held in the the slam, we call it, it's a jail cell behind the courtroom, he was actually seriously assaulted at the direction of the defendant. Although the defendant was a female, she directed the other males in the male slam to assault him with handcuffs, and he was seriously injured. Uh, So that's just some examples of curveballs that I've uh, kind of experienced in trial. I've, of course, uh, experienced the same types of things. Um, specifically, uh, in in Tennessee, we have uh, rules of reciprocal discovery, meaning the defendant has to turn over uh, documents or tangible objects if they're going to use them. And there are some defenses, like mental health defenses, that we're we're entitled to get notice of. But for the large part, it's trial by ambush in Tennessee. The the defendant and the defense attorney can figure out what their defense is, and you know, essentially surprise us with it at trial. And that's happened to me on multiple occasions where I wholly not expected a a particular defense because one of the things that we do during pretrial litigation phase is the defendants who are incarcerated, uh, their jail mail and uh, their phone calls are monitored for security purposes. And we uh, monitor those and sometimes we'll get intelligence on what a defense is. And I recently had a first-degree murder case where uh, the defendant uh, the entire time during all his jail communications was alleging that some other dude did it. We call that the Saudi defense, S-O-D-D-I, some other dude did it. And uh, so we fully expected that somebody else was going to, he was going to present a defense where somebody else was going to be, uh, have participated in the crime. So I spent a significant amount of pretrial preparation with the uh, cell phone companies, uh, GPS, ping locations, all of those things, including uh, the exhibits and and uh, expensive exhibits, uh, preparing for uh, placing the defendant at the crime scene at the exact time uh, and uh, date and place uh, that the crime occurred. And uh, leading up to trial, I spent a significant amount of resources on that. And uh, an opening statement, the defense attorney stood up and said, um, my my person is guilty of this offense, but we have an explanation for his uh, conduct. And so the all the resources and effort that I put into the preparation for proving that it was this person that did it, not some other dude did it, that, uh, uh, that kind of all went to the wayside. And I was uh, a little floored, actually. That was a, a recent murder trial where that curveball uh, and the inability to, to really know what the defense is prior to trial is uh, something that you really got to be prepared for. Anything can happen in the trial. And in this particular case, 
Uh, since that defendant was saying he didn't do it all along to his family, we fully expected that, but we just had to roll with it, and we ended up with a good result in the case. I think sometimes, too, that some of these defenses are immediately dismissed by the jury. It's been my observation, hybrid defenses, if you will. I've seen that in, in two of the cases that I've handled, and that typically is, you know, I, I didn't do it, but if you think I did it, if the proof shows that, that I did, in fact, do it, then I acted in self-defense. And, and I've noticed that jurors are pretty dismissive of that, and uh, they, don't, they don't assign much weight to that particular defense. Yeah, we want jurors with common sense that'll dismiss that kind of stuff, so— Well, as you've both just described, there are no guarantees in jury trials. So with that in mind, uh, what's the longest and shortest amount of time you've had to wait for a verdict? I think in my experience, a a quick verdict is not a good sign for the state. There's no really hard and fast rule on on the length of time they've come back because uh, normally quick verdicts are bad. But some of the best ver- verdicts I've had were within minutes as well. So it's, it ranges anything from minutes to several days. Uh, the juries have instructions they go back in the jury room with is sometimes 60, 70 pages long. And so uh, for people that aren't used to um, legal terms, for people that uh, have no exposure to the criminal justice system, which are the, essentially the folks that we're, we're seeking out to uh, sit on juries, uh, it'll take them a while to digest that. And so for a jury on a regular first-degree murder case, uh, will it won't be atypical for them to be out two days uh, uh, and really trying to get it right. And, and I think our juries uh, really struggle with it and really uh, try to get the, uh, come up with the right solution, and they want time to do that. So sometimes uh, the, the gravity of the case lengthens the uh, time that uh, the juries want to spend with it, but I think that that's a good thing. And just adding to that, I think it's been my observation that that jurors uh, in the state of Tennessee they take their civic duty very seriously. They're very thorough. Uh, they have the ability to ask questions and ask the judge uh, a particular question, and the judge will then call the attorneys for both sides in, and we will agree on an answer to the question, or we will uh, the judge will refer them back to the the jury instructions, which again are very voluminous, uh, just based on these types of offenses. But uh, overall, I think the jurors in the state of Tennessee they they really do take this job. Seriously. Seriously, they try to get it right. Uh, they realize how severe these punishments are going to be. Although, uh, absent a death penalty case or life without parole, they're not a fixing punishment. So, I think that's that's important for listeners to understand as well. As prosecutors in the major crimes units, you both see and encounter evil in the world on a daily basis. So, tell us what keeps you going. I think, you know, the cliche kind of statement or response to that is the pursuit of justice. But uh, to me, that's very important. Whether that's a a small dose of uh, giving a family some sense of closure in a homicide case, although their loved one uh, will never be returned to them, they know that uh, there's some form of accountability that the defendant's going to face for the decisions he made or she made to take their loved one's life. So, uh, the pursuit of justice certainly is my my biggest drive to continue doing what I'm doing. And this is a job that I feel is a calling. You don't become an ADA to be rolling uh, in the high salaries. You, you do this out of compassion. You do it because you want to make a difference. You do it because you want to see that family come out of the courtroom and and, and kiss and cry on you and, and tell you uh, how, how much they uh, are happy that you've put forth an effort to prosecute the bad person in this scenario. So it, it's well worth it to me. It's the best job that, that I could think of as being an attorney, and I, I plan to do it for a career. 
Yeah, and, and I, nothing I can do or say is ever going to alleviate the pain that's been caused or uh, that they've been suffering and enduring since they lost their loved one. And so I take that responsibility when knowing that this is probably I'm going to be dealing with them on what they will consider the worst day of their life and talking about the worst day of their life. I, I don't take it personal when they don't want to see me again after the trial, but I can say that when you said it all, when you said at the beginning that we give our all for them, I view a jury trial as one shot. And it really is because uh, what the public doesn't know is that the state doesn't get any do-overs. The state doesn't get appeals from bad verdicts. The, only the defendant does. So we don't have anything, any recourse but this one trial. And it's kind of like a, a juncture in time and space where everything comes together all at once. And it's 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 me and my effort. It's the, the victim and, and their losses. It's the jurors that come together, the judge, uh, that we all come together and the defendant in this, in this kind of a a juncture uh, that will only occur once and it will only occur. And if I'm not ready for everything and if I haven't done every single thing I could possibly think of and prepared in every possible way that I can possibly prepare, then I haven't lived up to the oath of my office and I haven't lived up to being a, a major crimes prosecutor uh, in seeking justice for that victim. And I view that responsibility, you know, really uh, incredibly heavy. And I think that they deserve that. And when you say you give it your all, a victim's family knows the difference between a prosecutor who gives their all and who doesn't. And I think that at the end of the day, when they come out of that, when Hector walks out of the courtroom, uh, whether, you know, the verdict is a good verdict or, or a, you know, some sort of compromise verdict, or when I walk out of the courtroom with that victim's family, they know that I've taken a roundhouse and I've done every possible thing that I can possibly do to uh, seek justice in their case. And they know the difference. And I think that the, it's the gratitude, I think, that keeps me going. I have a picture on my wall that a victim's family gave me in recognition of a, of a jury trial that I did in a murder case where their uh, loved one was killed. And one of their family was a, a pretty talented artist. And he drew a caricature of myself, lead investigator, uh, our victim witness coordinator, Kim Strike at the time, and our crime scene tech. They He drew a, a, a kind of a caricature of superheroes as, uh, where we uh, were caricatured as Batman, Superman, uh, et cetera. And so it was that gratitude that family had uh, for me, knowing that I had given my all that that keeps me going. I think one more thing that really drives me too, and um, and to keep going on with these uh, types of cases, despite the the obvious presence of evil, is the investigators. Um, these are are people that put forth uh, 110% on every case. As Kevin said earlier, we are fortunate to be able to work with 20 or more uh, investigators between two agencies that that really give it their all. Um, they will work sometimes. 36 hours straight on a case to identify a defendant. They are there at trial. They are sitting at the table with us. The jury knows who they are. Uh, this is their case that we're prosecuting uh, in collaboration with them. They come to really trust us. They come to confide in us, make charging decisions. And it's, again, it's just an experience that is like no other. To be a member of this unit is, is certainly a, a privilege. Well, thank you both so much for spending time with us today, and thank you for all the time you spend serving victims in our community. You provided some great information and insight for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. In closing, we want to encourage the community to help prevent crime and promote community safety. Remember, crime doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't matter where you live. Crime impacts all of us. 
In order to maintain public safety, we need the community's involvement and the community's help, especially in homicide cases. If you see something, say something. We need witnesses to come forward and cooperate with law enforcement. There may be instances where you have crucial information and not even know it. Providing information to the police doesn't necessarily mean you'll have to testify in a trial, but it very well could help solve a homicide. Thank you for listening to Generally Speaking, a podcast presented by the Knox County District Attorney's Office. You can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website, knoxcounty.org DAG. We hope you'll join us for our next episode where we will be speaking with ADA Willie Lane from our Domestic Violence Unit. If you want to learn more, we've included links to sidebar conversations in the show notes. Don't miss out on more behind-the-scenes content.